or a device you'll be looking at the scripture with us this morning. We're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Um, so we have been working our way through 1 and 2 Samuel um, over the last several months. Um, and, and so we, we preach this way where we take um, a book of scripture and we just work our way through it. And we do that intentionally um, for a couple reasons. One, is because it, it, it allows us to see that all of God's worth, uh, all of God's word has value, right? It has worth. That it's all given to us for life and for godliness. I mean that we that we need it, right? Like it's it's a good reminder that if if we come to a particular passage and there's there's difficulty, that we're willing to wrestle and struggle to figure out what it means. Um, that if a particular sin is there that you struggle with, that it's not that someone tipped me off during the week, right? Actually, that was just the next passage up. Um, and so it's, it's good for us um, to look at the whole story um, and not just um, forcing us to go, okay, how do, we, how do we keep ourselves entertained with the Word of God this week? How do we make sure there's something that, that is going to really resonate with us? We're going to trust the Spirit's going to do that, that He is going to draw that out of His Word. And, and honestly, there's a, a, a need for us to look at both the Old Testament and the New Testament because it's telling one story. And if we're only ever looking at a portion of the story, we're missing out. Um, even this week, I um, was driving to Amarillo, actually back from Amarillo with some friends, and Carmen points out where I proposed alongside the highway, right? And you think, wait a second, you did what? Right, you proposed along the highway. I did, but there's more to the story than that, right? And so if you only hear that story, you're not thinking very highly of me at the moment, and maybe you didn't anyway, right? But... But there is more to that story that builds up to that. And if you only ever look at the, a portion of it, and now you're wanting the story, and I'm not going to tell it at the moment. Um, I'll tell it if you ask later. Um, there, is, there is a lead-up, right, that matters. And, and, but sometimes that part gets muddled and difficult. And so we're willing to sit in First and Second Samuel that we are some 3,000 years removed from because it's giving us insight into the overarching story, the, the significance of what we see in all of Scripture. And, and so we're going to, let's just pick up in verse 1 of 2 Samuel 7. Now when the king, meaning David, lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all of his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. We're going to stop for just a second. So we need to make sure we're caught up. David has had a long and arduous road um, to the king, to the kingship. Um, right? Saul was king for 40 years. Um, David was anointed for much of that, knowing the throne was eventually going to be his. Saul's trying to kill him. Um, there's, there's difficulty, um, travail, all of this over the years. And as as David is headed to the throne, um, even when he gets there, there's betrayal, there's death, there's, there's military victories, um, there's battles. It has not been an easy fight. But what we've seen as we've begun 2 Samuel is that David has now made Jerusalem his capital, right? He's politically unified Israel. Um, the Ark of the Covenant, right, this holy relic is now in the city, and so it's not just the political capital, it's also the spiritual capital, um, that David has defeated his enemies, he's, he's unified the nation, that he's on the throne, that Israel is on the land that God has promised them. And so he goes, I think I need to build a temple. 
Right, like the Ark of the Covenant, the, this reminder of God's presence that's been with them since they left Egypt, has either been in a, in, in a, in a tent or a tabernacle of some sort. And so he's going, hey, we should build something because this is, this is our place and this is our people and we want to honor our God. And if I'm living in a home, then I think God needs to have a temple. And we even here get a brief mention of Nathan who will play prominently in the rest of Second Samuel. We get no introduction here other than just the, that he's a prophet that David trusts. And so David's desire at this point is to continue to show Israel as a nation. It's to honor God. It's to build up a temple. And so Nathan has initially said, listen, go and do all that's in your heart because God's with you, right? Like he knows that he inquires of the Lord. But let's continue in verse 4. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord. Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I've moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel? whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you would be the prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So we have right David assuming he's going to build a temple. Um, Nathan assumes that that's what God wants as well. And then Nathan receives the word from the Lord, right, saying, David's not going to build a house. He's not going to build a temple for me. And he just begins to lay out this word for David. And the first thing we just need to note is, is God is reminding David, he's reminding Nathan, he's reminding Israel, he's reminding us, God doesn't need David's hands, right? He doesn't need David to do everything for him, right? Like the God is saying, listen, I have provided for my people long before you were king. I have led them out of slavery. I took care of them in, in the wilderness. I took care of them with, with water, with food, right? In the desert, I have cared for them. I have provided for them. I have provided um, wisdom and leadership and law and, and rule. I have provided everything that my people needed. That He's protected them. Right? That they have won military victories that they should not have won because God was with them. 
that he's able to defend himself, right? We're reminded as the Ark of the Covenant earlier in 1 Samuel was stolen by the Philistines, right? That, that God's able to make the Philistines give it back without needing an army to go in and, and re- retrieve it, to rescue it, because he's just destroying the Philistines with sickness and with their idols falling over and, and being cut apart, right? That God is able to provide, he's able to protect, he's able to defend himself, that he is the true king, right? Like the issue with Saul as king was this. He says, you want a king like the nations, like these others. He's like, you already have me caring for you, providing for you, defending you, leading you, shepherding you. Your king is not going to be a blessing. It's going to be a curse when you want a king like the nations. And that's what Saul was for 40 years. So he's reminding them, listen, I've already led these people. I've already been their king. And so David... I appreciate that you want to build a temple for me. But that's not going to be your job to do. It's going to be your son's, right? We know that Solomon, his son, will ultimately build the temple, right, to house the Ark of the Covenant, to, to be a place of worship for both Israel and the nation. But I, what I want us to, to look at this, he says in verse 6, I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But listen, I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I've moved with all the people of Israel, I didn't ask. It's not like people, I've been saying, do this, do this, and no one's doing it. He said, I've just moved with you. I've dwelled among you. Right? We often look at Jesus right, as, as the one who came and put on flesh and dwelled among us. Right? He was the incarnate Son of God. And it's a beautiful picture of God's presence with us, that He never leaves us nor forsakes us. And yet, what God is reminding them is, I've been doing that before Jesus stepped on the scene as well. That I've moved with my people. I've been with them. My presence has been among them. And it's this beautiful picture of God with His people. And we basically have a play on words happening here, where David has wanted to build a house for God, and God says, no, 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 I'm going to build your house. Not meaning a literal house, but meaning a dynasty. That your, like your lineage, your kinship, your sons, your grandsons, that the throne is going to continue to be passed from one to another to another. It was torn from Saul and given to David, and yet he tells David, it's going to be yours and your houses forever. This is beautiful and powerful picture. Listen, so ultimately Solomon, son of David, will build a temple. Solomon is going to sin, right? David is a sinner. We've seen that. We're going to continue to see that. Solomon is as well. Other kings are going to come and go. And so it's important that we note that he says, I'm going to give it to you forever. Forever. Like that, listen, can you, we've only been in First and Second Samuel for a couple of months, and there's been a ton of drama. It has not been an easy task for David to get to the throne. And, and, and yet here God is saying, hey, as arduous as it was, I'm going, to, I'm going to give it to you forever? Like, seriously? Forever? So what we see is that there's something more than on the surface happening here. There is a, 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 a messianic undertone. Like, 2 Samuel 7 is going to become a turning point in all of the Old Testament for us. It's one that's going to be referred back to by prophets. It's going to be referred back to by New Testament writers. This is going to become a linchpin of what God is doing. So we are roughly 1,000 B.C., so we're 1,000 years before Jesus is going to step on the scene. 
We're 3,000 years removed from it. Right? And, and, and so God is saying, I'm going to give you, David, the throne forever. In Deuteronomy 17, we see this. This is prior to um, Israel ending up in the land, and he gives them, he says, listen, you're going you're gonna to come to the land that I'm going to give you. This is verse 14. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it, and you dwell in it, and then you're going to say, I will set a king over me like the nations that are around me. We've seen that now with Saul. You may indeed, though, set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. This is David. One from among your brothers you shall set his king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself, cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not require for himself many wives, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Right? And it goes on to say, like, he, he needs to walk with me and know me and know the law. Solomon, um, who's going to get to build the temple, we go to 1 Kings, we're going to see how he actually doesn't do, doesn't fulfill any of these things. Listen to verse 26 of 1 Solomon 10. Or sorry, 1 Kings 10, not 1 Solomon. Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen, whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. All right, if we look at verse 3 of chapter 11, he had 700 wives who were princesses, 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. Right? We've seen this happen. Deuteronomy 17 said it would happen. It has. And then back in chapter 10 and verse 21. All King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold, and all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were of pure gold, none of silver. Silver was not considered as anything in the days of Solomon because of such excess of gold. And so we see, right, the one who's going to build the temple, the one whose the dynasty is going to begin to flow through, doesn't meet any of the requirements that God has laid out in Deuteronomy 17. Right, that he's going to have excessive gold, excessive wives, and excessive horses. Which I hope you then begin, your heart just begins to be kind of turned and stirred to thinking of Jesus, who had to borrow a colt to ride in on Palm Sunday, who was not married, and who the Scripture said had nowhere to lay his head. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 actually says that he Right, who was rich became poor for our sake. Right, that we're seeing Jesus in comparison to the kings of Israel without excessive wealth, women, right, horses. Like that he came as a different type of king. And so in 2 Samuel 7, we're seeing a blending of these two things. We're seeing the word happening for Solomon and the dynasty that is going to be built. And we're also going to see clearly that it's not going to come right by the hands of man as maybe would have been expected. Right? That we're beginning to see that something else, this messianic, this hope of one who is coming, is already beginning to be laid, this foundation. And so, at the end of the Old Testament, before we have 400 years of silence, and then the New Testament, um, at that point, Israel's in exile. Like they've, they've been removed from the land. Kings have fallen. Kings have fell. Right? We, they have not been honoring to 2 Samuel 7, 
And so the question at that point was this, has God's word failed? Is he not able to keep his promises? Is he not faithful to them? Right? And, and so the question that is being stirred in us, like, what, what has gone on? Like, is, was it, it the nation of Israel, or was there something bigger in, at, at, at play? Listen to how the prophets would refer to this. We could turn to basically every prophet. I'm just going to read two passages. The first is Jeremiah, uh, chapter 31, beginning in verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their heart. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbors and his brothers, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. And then if we, you turn over to Isaiah, a passage that often gets read only at Christmas time. This is Isaiah 9. For to us... A child is born. To us, a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Right? And so the prophets are looking back at, at 2 Samuel 7 going, listen, God has promised that His kingdom will last forever. It's going to be from the throne of David. And, and God is continuing to give them words that this one is coming who is going to be, bring about righteousness and justice. And we're going to be able to know God. And our sin is going to be forgiven. And they're going, but who is it? Like, who is it? Right, this is where this, this expectation of the Messiah is really being birthed and, and, and pushed forward. And so David hears this word, right? And at this point, he doesn't know Solomon's failures. He doesn't know what's going to come. What he has heard is God has said, I'm going to honor your family, and I'm going to build a dynasty out of it, and the, king will, the kingship will land on your people for all time. So let's continue and see David's response to being told, you're not going to build a house for me, but he's received a really powerful and encouraging word. Verse 18. So King David went in, and he sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this instruction for mankind, O Lord God. What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you. There is no God besides you according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people, whom you redeemed from yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people, Israel, to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God, 
And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. Your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God and your words are true and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now therefore may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. Like what a response of just prayer and worship to unmerited grace. Right? We have seen... David has, is not a perfect man, that he has sinned. We know the rest of the story that he will have additional continued sin, and yet he just pours out praise and worship upon God for saying, I've chosen you, David. I've chosen your house. I'm going to bless Israel and the world through your lineage. And David doesn't beat his chest and say, that's right, I'm quite impressive. He goes, God, you see me? Like, it, it, this is huge, and yet for you it was a small thing. Right? He has the perspective of the significance and the bigness of God and the smallness of himself and the smallness of Israel. That Israel was not a mighty, powerful nation. It was small right? when God shows them. That David was in um, the, amongst the flocks, right? in the pastures as a shepherd, and now his risen to the, to the level of king because of God's hand upon him. And so he just continues to pray and say, God, it's for your name that you're doing this, not my name. It's for your name that you're doing this, not for Israel's name. It's for your glory that people will know you, that they'll see how wonderful and glorious you are. And so he talks about the past. He says, look, God, at what you did in bringing us out. God, look at what you're doing now in the present. And you said you're going to do this forever? Right? He is praising God for the past, the present, and the future because God is, is faithful to keep His promises. Listen, we're going to see that David, like this, this is not going to be kept because of David's ability to keep this covenant. It's not going to be kept because of Solomon's ability or Israel's ability. Right? We know the story of the Old Testament that there are these moments where the nation as a whole would cry out like David, God, you are everything. And then they begin to turn to themselves. And they nosedive. And they have difficulty or they get defeated or they go into exile. And they cry back out to God, no, 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 we need you. And you're everything and we forgot that. And they come back up. And then in their pride, they turn away from Him. Right? It, it's the same we see in our own life. Right? That often we see God rightly with a right perspective when we're giving Him worship and praise and glory. And then other times we're like, beating our own chest and thinking much of ourselves and elevating ourselves and in our pride, our sin, right, trips us up. We have to cry out to God again, being reminded. And so this is the king showing humility, showing healthy perspective and giving honor and praise to God. It's a beautiful response to the character of God. And so here's what I want us to see in, in 2 Samuel 7, because this is a chapter I hope that you, as you are reading through Scripture, 
whether you're in the prophets, in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, that you're going to begin to refer back to 2 Samuel 7. It's such a linchpin for us. But that Scripture is telling one story. right? There's, there are many authors, there are many books, there are many stories, there are, there are many thousands of years, but ultimately there's one story that's being right interwoven amongst all of those. And so if we go back to Genesis 3, right, where the curse happens, where sin and rebellion have occurred, right? remember God, as He is cursing man and woman because of their rebellion and their lack of trust in Him, He says, but there will be one in, in verse 15 right, who will come. And He's going to crush the head of your enemy. He said, His hill will be struck. We talked about this on Good Friday, right? That the cross was His hill being struck. But the head of the enemy was, de- was defeated. It was crushed by the cross, by Jesus' resurrection. Right? That, that even in that moment, as, as hope has been lost, hope was being given back. That as they're being removed from the garden, there's one that's going to come that's going to make things right. And then we go over to Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Right? And Abraham, this pagan, has been called to know and to trust God. And he's told, I'm going to raise up from you who currently have no heirs a nation that you won't be able to count. And that it's going to bless the world. The nations are going to come and know God because of you. Right? And so this story is being told of there's going to be one that's coming. In Genesis 12, there's going to be a people. And this is the one where the, this one is going to come from. Jesus is going to bless the world right? because of this nation that we see in Genesis 12. We get to Deuteronomy 17 and this people, Israel, who's been chosen by God to be this nation, it was coming from Abraham. Right? We get to Deuteronomy 17 and they're told there's going to be a land that you're going to have. And you're going to have a king. And this is what the king should look like. We get to 2 Samuel 7 and we begin to see the fulfillment. These promises are coming true. They're all being tied together. That the land is secured. A capital has been secured. That David is a good king. A man after God's own heart. But he's not perfect. But he's now been promised the throne forever. And we see the ups and downs of Scripture. And then we get 400 years of silence. Israel lost in exile. We get to the New Testament, and in Luke chapter 1, we hear this in verse 31. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Listen, he will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. You see this? Like the story is being connected. That the one that you've been waiting for from Genesis 3, the one who will come and crush the enemy, the one through Israel in Genesis 12, through a king in, De- in Deuteronomy 17, through the house of David in 2 Samuel 7, is now on the scene. It's Jesus, the Son of God, right? whose lineage goes back to David, and yet He is the God-man. And His throne will not end. Right? Like, that we see that one that's promised in Isaiah 9, in this new covenant in Jeremiah 31, that all of this through the, the, the narrative of Old Testament, through the prophecy of the Old Testament, through the stories of the Old Testament, it's all coming in the person and the work of Jesus. 
John 1 will say that Jesus is going to come and He's going to tabernacle. He's going to dwell among us. Right? The temple that they wanted to build to house God is Jesus. Right? Like he's going to be the greater temple. Matthew 19.28, He talks about His throne that He will sit on forever with the disciples. John 18.26, He says, listen, my kingdom is not of this world. It's bigger than that. It's not just holding a piece of ground in the Middle East. It's creation for all time and for all eternity. Jesus comes and gives rest, right? He defeats enemies, right? They're not waiting, wondering who's going to come attack us next, right? Like that He brings a kingdom that is different. And then we get to Acts 1. And so we've seen Jesus' life, we've seen His death, we've seen His resurrection, and we get to Acts chapter 1, and Jesus ascends back to heaven. And in that moment, the disciples are going, okay, now what? And He says, you're going to continue to make disciples of the nations, blessing the world until I return. How long is that, Jesus, until I get back? The church, these stories aren't just stories in the Bible. This is also our story. Because Jesus hasn't split the sky again to return for us. So it means Acts 1 is continuing. We're still in it. And the, the message and the charge to us is church, make disciples. Know me and make people know me. Right? Walk with me and help people see me until I come back. Right? So that in Revelation, right, when there's the, the, the marriage feast of the Lamb in chapter 21, right, when we, we see this moment where we're all with God once again for those who have known, loved, trusted, and followed Jesus. Right, that we see the story culminates with where it began. And that it was Jesus was the story that was being told. That He was rescuing His people, bringing them back to the Father. In the meantime, we live in a place in between. The story's not over yet, although victory is won. And so we are not simply mere consumers that come and sit in church on Sunday who claim Jesus we are disciples who have been charged to make Him known amongst the nation, amongst our neighbors, amongst our children, amongst our co-workers. In all that we're doing, we are living a life that brings glory and honor to Him because we're on mission that's been given. Right, This story in 2 Samuel 7 that's 3,000 years removed is part of our story. It's part of our story. And the mission's not over. It continues. And God is at work in us and through us to bring about the completion of this, of His kingdom for all time. And so listen, we get to be a foretaste of this glorious kingdom here on earth. Because as we as the church live out the one another's, as we forgive one another, as we pray for one another, as we bear one another's burdens, as we give rest and peace, and as we see enemies defeated, right? Like it's, it's a glimpse of what his eternal kingdom will look like for all time. With enemies removed, with death defeated, with our good King who is righteous and just. And so we get to see glimpses of that now in this world, in the church. Listen, it was given to Israel without merit. Israel did not earn it. God chose them. He made them His. David did not somehow get God's attention and he says, okay, well, you're the best I've got. I'm gonna... It was given grace 
unmerited to him. Church, would we not forget that that's our story as well? None of us have merited God's grace. None of us have got his attention and said, man, that dude's pretty impressive. That woman, wow. Unmerited grace given because God is gracious and good. His name is worthy and he is glorious and he is making his enemies into his sons and daughters, into his family. That we're a part of that. And so we want to study 2 Samuel 7 so that we would see and celebrate and recognize Jesus when he steps on the scene. We want to see scriptures about the throne or about eternal kingdom and go, oh, they were promised that a thousand years before Jesus stepped on the scene. We, we see him in that. So church, would we, like David, respond then in praise? God, look at what you've done. Look at how glorious you are. Look at how small of a thing this was for you to do and how impressive and massive and huge it was for me because I would be without hope otherwise. And so then we want to live in light of that, reflecting his character, right? Drawing people in saying, guess what? You can get in on this too. There's the best thing in the world and you don't have to pay for it because it's been paid for. And we don't then mock it or say it's cheap. We say, no, 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 Jesus is of the highest value and the highest worth that we're going to give our lives, that others would know him and that he would receive the worship and the praise that he is so richly due now and forever. So church, would we be marked as a second Samuel 7, right? Like that we are pushing the mission forward. So I'm going to pray for us and then will we stand um, and sing and pray and respond to our King this morning. Father, thank you that we can dig into a story 3,000 years old and see you and see the, the call and the role that you've have, you have brought us into. God, that we get to be a part of the greatest story in the world. So Father, would you sink um, your character and, you, and your call and your words and your nature deep within us God, that praise would just pour forth. And God, would we then long and desire for others who right now are caught up in sin, who are caught up in um, their own struggle, who are caught up in the brokenness of the world and are just blind um, spiritually to you. God, that we would be able to just kind of tap them on the shoulder and say, no, no, look, look at Jesus. Look at what he's done in me. And trust that you will bring unmerited grace to their life just like you brought to our life. And we're not superior. We're not better. We're recipients. But we know you, the giver of life, the Holy One, who has walked amongst us. God, we want to please you. We want to know you. We want to, to honor you with all of our lives. Would you continue to speak to your church now? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.